AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our full plugged-in award season crew. We've got our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Uh, it was a long holiday weekend, but also a really busy one awards-wise. Both the PGA Awards and the SAG Awards happened over the weekend uh, with two different winners, which gives us a lot to talk about in this short award season that um, does feel kind of excitingly up in the air, uh, at least in the Best Picture race. Um, we'll also talk a little bit about Sundance. We're shipping Richard off to the mountains of Utah in a couple days uh, to see all of next year's Best Picture nominees. I think that's how Sundance usually goes, right? No- oh, nothing yeah. but winners. It was so Absolutely. exciting to see Joker at Sundance last year. It was... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then in the back half of this episode, uh, I am going to be talking to Ellen Lewis, who is the casting director for The Irishman and has worked with Scorsese for many years. Uh, casting directors are kind of famously do not have a category at the Oscars, which a lot of people see as a big injustice, but they also have their own award show called the Ardios Award. So I'm going to talk to her about that and uh, casting, I think, one of the most fascinating casts of the year. Um, but I guess speaking of casts, we should start with the SAG Awards. It's the most recent awards show to happen. I had a really great time watching it. I love the SAG Awards and how uh, comparatively short they are. And, and Parasite won. Guys, This is it, does this throw the Best Picture race into total chaos? It kind of feels that way to me. I mean, not only did they win, they were getting standing ovations left and right. Yeah. Like, people were super <laughs> into that. You know, and I think that, like, something we've said about Parasite and, and we said about Roma last year to some extent is, like, sometimes it's hard with you when you have a, a, a really beloved movie that's not in English. It can win technical awards. It can win directing awards, whatever. But, like, if I've never worked with that actor, so I don't know if I want to vote for them. Well, you know, this felt like very much like the Hollywood American community of actors extending a big welcome to a group of people that most of them have probably not worked with, but which I think means that movie has legs. So we should say that the SAG Awards don't have a Best Picture winner because that's not something that they do. But this is the ensemble winner, which is like their closest analog to that, right? And 1917, up until that win, felt like, you know, as a Saturday, because it won the PGA Award, like the anointed winner just on a like victory lap to home. But Parasite wins, but 1917 wasn't nominated in that category, right? 
Yeah, it was not nominated. So it didn't even have a chance to win. So like I'm 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 for chaos. I'm for question marks because this, you know, all the actor races seem sewn up, so it's nice to have like a, a big question, but it doesn't feel like thrown into complete chaos for me only because this wasn't even something nineteen seventeen could win. Do you know? It's so funny how how we we have this situation. I think we're in a situation where the two movies with the best chance of winning Best Picture, um, as we've discussed, don't have any acting nominations. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that just really strongly seems to be an issue of people just not knowing who the actors are yet and right. remembering their names, right? Like George Mackay. We finally figured out how to pronounce his name. I still have been spelling it wrong. It's M-A-C-K-A-Y, <laughs> no E at the end. Um, and Dean Charles Chapman, you know, th- these are these names don't trip off the tongue. And then the Parasite folks, I mean, I think a lot of people in Hollywood um, are probably worried they can't even pronounce them, let alone remember them. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I don't think any of them were nominated for individual SAG awards, were they? No. So it's sort of funny nice but also kind of like okay um that they get the big award for the best cast but none of them got any individual awards it seemed like at least an, a, a recognition or acknowledgement of like hey this is a blind spot like when everybody's new to us we haven't seen them before you know it does we don't pull that trigger to give them acting nominations um but in the end you guys actually all together did the best acting mm-hmm. i do think that that is an interesting difference between 1917 and parasite the two again the two best picture possibilities that have no acting nominations which is weird it's an unusual situation for one best picture let alone you know the two favorites it does throw a kind of fly in the predictive ointment to think that well the other best picture frontrunner 1917 wasn't there so like can we really compare it it's kind of it's, it's tricky to assess but i do think that like it was a strong statement of support from sag actors make up the biggest branch of the academy yes does that mean that those same voters will put Parasite first in their ballot? No, but maybe it means they'll put it second. You know, I don't know. So, like, I feel like I don't know that it, it 100% shifted my sort of perception about uh, 1917's chances, but to me, it's uh, it felt like a significant triumph. And even if nothing comes of it past the SAG Awards, that that movie won that yeah. award well, is so cool. Yeah, and, and by the way, it's also, I think it's an accurate reflection of what an ensemble yes. movie that is. You know, it's not a movie with giant standout individual performances necessarily. It's, I mean, there are lots of great performances, but they all, it really is the sum is greater than the, its parts. Whereas 1917 is really George Mackay, first and foremost, you know, running. Right. Uh, so that's that's different. And he, either he gets that nomination or he doesn't. And I, and I genuinely think he didn't just because people didn't know his name. Well, right. And that, the other thing was like, you know, when I was doing awards voting for like critics groups and whatnot, there was always this kind of discussion, you know, with friends beforehand or whatever. Like, yeah, I love everyone in Parasite, but like, who do you really single out? Yes, and and right. it usually went to Song Kang Ho, who plays the father of the poorer family, yes. because he is, you know, maybe has the kind of steepest arc in the movie or something. But like, it's really, really hard. And so this is a perfect award for them, you know? Yeah. Do you guys know when the voting window was on the SAG Awards? I'm just looking. Um, the SAG nominations came out in early December, um, like two weeks after 1917 had first started screening. Um, I, I imagine that's where you're going with this, that 1917 being late was a factor in it not being nominated at SAG. No, I mean, because I, I think it's true that um, other than like George being overlooked, I think that isn't a movie that necessarily would be thought of for ensemble. I was more thinking, I feel like in the past, in a longer award season, the SAG results have been sort of a referendum on the Academy's um, 
very white choices often. I, I like remember a year when like um, non-white actor after non-white actor was like not only winning, but like also like all the presenters. It was just like a very much a like, we're not Oscar so white felt like a very much year. And I think that this award has been an opportunity for the SAG um, members to be like, we are a more, um, inclusive environment, we've had winners like Black Panther or Hidden Figures for this particular award. So I feel like it's an opportunity for them to be like, we're not the Academy. We do have space for non-white actors. This is what we would like um, our awards body to be reflective of. I don't know if that's like, does that sound off or? I mean, I expected Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to win, like, as a giant ensemble movie, kind of in the vein of Black Panther, honestly, where it's, like, a bunch of more recognizable people who you know, like, working in separate scenes, um, like, not as intensely all the actors involved with each other as Parasite. Um, but I do think that there is some, even if, even with this season being shorter, there is a way for SAG voters, you know, as actors, I guess, maybe to be like, okay, now we know what the good acting is. Like, we're going to be the ones to weigh in. And um, maybe that was part of this, too. Mm-hmm. I still think 1917 is is the favorite. I agree. And, like, not just because I like the movie more than a lot of people, but, like, I would be thrilled if, a, if Parasite won, though. I actually think Parasite is a, a film that I liked. I, definitely, I liked it better than 1917. I'd be thrilled for it to win. So I don't want to be, like, cynical and be like, well, it doesn't have a chance. Like, I think people pushing for it and hoping for it, like, should push and hope for it. I just don't think that I would be... Uh, surprised or crushed if it didn't win, given all the factors pointing in another direction. Yeah, you know? well, it is so, that yeah. it's that nice year where I mean, it's kind of like to me the La La Land Moonlight year, where it's like I'm not going to be upset if either of these win. Mm-hmm. You know, right? Um, these are both good movies, and and of course, because of the times we live in, like people start lining up in ideological camps. But at the end of the day, like they're both good films. They're not like toxic in any super. I don't think right. you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I, I agree, and I, I think. You know, I I think the thing about the PGA win for 1917, the Producers Guild, is that yes, in very recent years, the PGA and Best Picture has not aligned a hundred percent. But like, just previous to those recent years, it's like all like a hundred percent. Yeah, you know, lockstep with with Best Picture, the Academy Awards. So I don't know. I I feel like still the PGA is very predictive, and 1917 winning that I don't know feels like a big a big thing. What yes. do you guys think? So the Directors Guild Awards are still yet to happen. That's going to be a really interesting, um, you know, referendum on all the stuff we're talking about. Like, I'm starting to more seriously consider the idea of a um, director picture split between Parasite as Best Picture and 1917 as Best Director. Largely, I think, thinking about The Revenant year, where um, the huge directorial achievement of The Revenant was, like, what people were talking about, and it didn't wind up winning Best Picture. It went to a uh, comparatively smaller movie. And uh, Parasite is not as, like, lo-fi as Spotlight was. But I don't know. Like, that... I've kind of convinced myself of that, and I'd be pretty happy with that outcome. I feel like it could go the other way. Yeah, because (laughs) because I think 1917. I think at the end of the day, people feel like 1917 is actually a cinematography achievement first and foremost, and so it's Roger Deakins obviously is going to take that that statuette. Um, And I think director Bong has really gone from you know a fairly obscure kind of cool arty guy who made Snowpiercer to like a sort of. 
I don't know, like a, a meme, you know, a human meme. He's fantastic. He's, he's Yeah, him taking pictures of the Parasite cast at the SAG Awards was incredible. Yeah, so I think everyone knows, and, and he's literally in his name, Director Bong. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like that kind of stuff actually is helpful in a mm-hmm. weird way. Like, um, So I could see Director Bong winning director because it's in his name, <laughs> yeah. and 1917 winning picture <laughs> because uh, it has the best pictures. There you go. I, mean, I, think, I think that's true. I mean, like... I don't know if I necessarily agree with with uh, Mike's reason why, but I I agree with that. I like that's that's where I think it's going. And then Quentin gets screenplay, and that's our three three picture spread, right? Like yeah, I, that's that's what it feels right to me. And if Parasite wins, I will just like hop out of my chair and be so happy about it too. So you know, it's like um, the but, idea but, of Sam yeah. Mendes winning Best Director a second time when you have Bong Joon-ho and Quentin Tarantino turning in like flat masterpieces right next to him. That that seems, it's like it definitely could happen, but it would also bum me out a little bit, even though I like 1917. Yeah, yeah. I, I really feel like Director Bong for like, not just like being a meme or having the word director to say, but also just like the goodwill. Like, what, like we mentioned a couple weeks ago that there was that screening of Parasite in Hollywood where you have like Brad Pitt like bowing to director Bong and stuff like that, you know, just being like, oh my God, I'm thrilled to meet you. And I was just thinking last night, I was like, he, director Bong could have anyone he wants in his next film. Like, I think everyone around the world would want to work with him on his next film, given what is going on with Parasite and how people feel about it. Well, does it help or hurt when he's going around saying, nah, I won't be making any Marvel movies? Like, that's not really my thing. But I actually think his response was like, uh, he handled it a bit better than... um, Scorsese or whatever, where he was just like, he's like, oh, sure, I like those movies. I don't think they want me on those. I'm like, I'm not that kind of guy. Did you know he what? say that their clothes were too tight and that was what made him uncomfortable about Marvel movies? <laughs> Did he say that? I That's believe great. so. I mean, the thing about clothing being tight I mean, which delighted the, the me. Other- the other thing about the about the Mendes train is that we were talking uh, last week about you know Todd Phillips and directors who've made a lot of money for Hollywood and and yes the Bond movies are a little bit outside of Hollywood and they're British they're up to broccoli zone like they're, they're studio movies for sure but. I feel like certain people in the Academy, directors or not, will be like, oh, cool that Mendes, you know, got to do, he did his big franchise movies. And now, yes, it's still a big, you know, technical, you know, achievement movie, but it's like more personal. It's about his grandfather. It's, you know, it's his return to his art form after doing, you know, the, the work of, you know, the of industry, you know, I don't know. I feel like, and, and it was 20 years ago that he won. I don't feel like Mendes' win is too soon or anything. I don't know. I feel like, I, I see him winning. I, I think he's the better shot to win Best Director, you know, uh, versus Bong, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, there certainly is, again, I think a current in the Academy of not wanting to alienate the audience at home by doing too much weird, arty stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, like people mm-hmm. are going to see this movie. People love this movie. Let's like validate our American audiences. You know, I think yeah. I think that whether that's correct or not, I, I don't particularly think it's the greatest attitude, but that definitely seems to be a force inside the voting body. If only they could have had a Jennifer Lopez, Eddie Murphy, and Adam Sandler at their awards show. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> then again, you know, Alfonso Cuaron wins last year, right? Like that, you know, yes, he's won a bunch of times, but like that's 
people weren't necessarily lining up around the Netflix uh, remote to see uh, Roma necessarily, right? I don't know. Did you uh, know that if Sam Mendes wins, it would be the biggest gap ever between Best Director Oscar wins? Oh, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. Would, it, well, like, because for me personally, 1999 was about five years ago. So it's sure. just crazy to me that that much time has passed. <laughs> five year gap. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you think it like Mendes hasn't like gone away or anything. He's just been like steadily working. It doesn't feel like that was that long ago. So maybe there's some historical appeal. Uh, and appeal he's just there. like, he's, he's an arty filmmaker in a sense, but who works within kind of the corporate structure yeah. and he does it well he does it successfully mm-hmm. he helped revive a huge franchise um you know uh that again is a little outside of hollywood but still has strong ties to hollywood and i just i don't know i feel like that that's a that's a company town and they appreciate that and as much as they like parasite and appreciate what he's do what that movie does and what bong has done in the past i don't know i feel like mendez will appeal to a certain demo within the academy that uh is, is kind of prone to making decisions based on on broader business interests and, and and sort of like sort of a more sort of social uh, engagement with the people they know and people they worked with. The way you just described Sam Mendes, though, like makes me maybe even a little more salty on Christopher Nolan's behalf, as a lot of people are getting like irritated that 1917 is getting all this momentum that Dunkirk didn't get. And I'm like, Nolan made you guys so much money with those Batman movies. What do you got to do? Like, <laughs> What's he got to do to you? get an Oscar from you people? <laughs> yeah, exactly. One thing that's also worth remembering is at least, you know, two weeks ago, before before um, the events of this past weekend and Parasite winning that SAG, um, the folks in 1917 were not worried about Parasite. They're worried about Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood. And, and mm-hmm. I think the assumption was that it, Parasite, it's going to be too easy to give it foreign language and some other, you know, things. That, 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 I mean, that does seem like a huge temptation for, as Mark Harris put it in his wonderful column for us, the spread the wealthers, um, who can just say it's going to get best foreign. Like, he's yeah. got the Oscar, you know, let us, now we'll, we'll go deal with Quentin and even Marty. We haven't even brought up Scorsese, but he's, he can't be counted out. So I, I think that is worth kind of checking our own enthusiasm for this cool movie that's something different, which is not always necessarily how the Academy thinks. I just have to once again, like, think about Roma and think about, like, how well Roma did and, and Parasite does not have the, like, Netflix prejudice working against it. It also doesn't have, like, the huge push of the Netflix yeah, marketing, it, like, it, uh, it, awards aren't behind it. But, but, you know. but, but Corona's not. made a lot of, Amer- you know, in American and British studio movies. You know, yes. pre- previous to Roma, so it's I, I yeah. feel like it's a little different, but like and like Okja, like you know, so that that counts. Like Bong has worked in and and Snowpiercer to some extent, um, although that's tainted by the whole Weinstein thing. But yeah, it's it's a complicated thing. I hope you're right, Joanna, that that Bong wins. I think that would be fantastic. Um, but I don't know, just something about the 1917 ascendancy feels pretty uh, unstoppable. Yeah. It does feel like um, if 1917 wins, it would be the second universal release in a row uh, to win because Green Book won last year. Um, and there is some kind of like revenge of the Hollywood Studios thing going on here. Um, not even with the Netflix of it, but, you know, Fox Searchlight was so dominant in Best Picture for so long. A24 won with Moonlight a couple years ago. Spotlight was, I think, open road. Um, but this whole, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I thought for a long time was going to be the big beneficiary of that being like, Hollywood's alive. We still make big movies at studios. Um, but I do think that might be a factor here, too of so many people in this company town being like, nah, we got to keep the business afloat. Yeah. Sorry, you said what won Best Picture last year? (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Black Panther, actually, weirdly. They went uh, and corrected the record. Imagine Universal, the roller coaster of emotions are at Universal 
riding the wave of Cats and Doolittle and then like <laughs> a nineteen seventeen Oscar win. Like what a time to be alive at Universal. It has been interesting. I mean, though, you take the good of the bad. It has been interesting watching I don't think they're gonna make any money from this, but watching cats now programmed at like midnight screenings for like kinda like drunk, you know, people who want to yell at the screen. Like yes. it's it's already become the weird culty thing. Like it didn't take five years for it to become that. I don't know. I just think, I think yeah. that maybe that's a tiny, 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 thinnest uh, sliver of silver lining for Universal for that movie. In, instant, instant Xanadu status, you know. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> the run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah. that. We support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes, it's been really great Shield being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run-Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Do you guys want to talk about the individual acting winners from SAG? They were precisely the people who we thought they were going to be. I'm not sure any of us would argue that anyone but Joaquin Phoenix, Renee Zellweger, Laura Dern, and Brad Pitt are going to win Oscars. Um, all I want to know. Make it look fun. All yeah, I want to yeah, know, Mike, your theory is who is writing Brad Pitt's jokes. So, and so if anybody had, knows, email me, call me. Tw- okay, tweet DMs me. are open. I had an un- I will not name them, but I had a comedian, a very known comedian. So respond. I like retweeted your tweet about that, Mike. Respond yes. to me and DMs about it. And I said, "Are you doing? Is it you? Yeah. Are you the ghostwriter?" And they said, "No. I really just think it's Brad doing Brad." And like, I was like, ah. I mean, I agree with Mike and most other people that I don't think I, Brad's very charming and funny, but not like preloaded with zingers necessarily funny um, in that way. But I was like, I feel like this comedian would know if it were someone, you know what I mean? Like, I think that would be a really hard secret to keep if there was a team, if there were a team. So, um, I mean, the guy basically owns a production company, right? Yeah. Like a very successful one. And uh, yeah, 
and is bros with like Adam McKay and you know like I, I, surely well, Adam McKay is not a bad theory. That's for my this, that's my he wouldn't best go around guess. talking about it. That's my best True. guess is Adam. Yeah. McKay. yeah, so it's not it's not like because I think someone was guessing like oh it's the like last week tonight stuff or something like that. I'm like okay I don't think it's like a like a like a hardworking in the writers room wearing a hoodie comedian. But yeah maybe it's an Adam McKay. But also he's not like killing at the Madison Square Garden. He's, he's telling some funny <laughs> jokes. He's not, yeah. you know, it's no, not, but I mean, it's a know. thing. This is a thing. Yeah. You wouldn't, it would be, let me just say this. He is executing a very beautiful strategy. Yeah. I'm kind of impressed because I didn't really expect Brad to take all this as seriously as he is. Um, and he's doing it in a really perfect way where every speech is uh, a perfect little audition. Like, hey, I'm going to be really good when you give me that Oscar. But without any thirst or you know any visible thirst or perspiration, um, but it's a it's a perfect crystallization of the ideal Brad Pitt persona, right? Like mm-hmm. self-deprecating, cool, you know, funny, um, giant hunk who's like can laugh at himself and also rib his buddies. Like this thing is just like it is. Idealized. Well, he did. So you can't. I mean, I'm sorry, but like he's working with some really good people on this. Oh, for sure. And I think I'm just curious, and I don't think there's a visible, you know, seam in the sort of narrative where this happened. But I'm just, I am curious where he decided he cared, you know, about this particular thing. Yes. And like maybe it's born out of sobriety, and he has a new sort of outlook on his career and and his public profile. You know, I I don't know what 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 the whole situation is, but um, yeah, he's played it very elegantly. And I think you know, I was talking with a friend of the podcast, Griffin Newman. Um, last night about this and we're like oh yeah like the four acting winners that that's all sewn up and he was like the only maybe if is like maybe Pesci could win right like it's for supporting maybe, maybe like pulls a Mark Rylance you yeah. know but that said wow. for people who have like sort of institutional knowledge of Pesci at award like they know that he's not he's he he, he might not even show up and he hasn't he does, been showing up to anything yeah, he came to new york yeah. film critics circle dinner that was the, the one the only one he said he would go to uh, and he did sh- show up and he went on stage but he came up there with scorsese and uh, de niro so he had some support um but like voters know that Pesci won't do anything if he gives a speech at all it'll be one word you know whereas you have this laid back handsome revived movie star glow rack on tour kind of just up there you know making self-deprecating but not sort of like self-flagellating jokes like yeah. it's it's just like i don't know like how, how could you not want another 90 seconds of that you know yeah here's what brad has always been really like you say this is the ideal brad and here's what brad has always been good at doing like throughout his career which is like i get it i'm so handsome and successful that you should hate me but i'm gonna be like so cool right. it's gonna be impossible <laughs> to hate me yeah just be on my team it's more fun on my team yep just come on over to my team and that's it's working so hard the uh the brad pitt thing we should talk about even though we're not like a you know gossip podcast or whatever but the Jen and the Brad of it all is oh obviously like a huge part of of the SAG is the story out of the SAG Awards unfortunately well, like Parasite is like the number two story Jen and Brad is the number one story and uh, Katie was the first person I saw to like sort of float this on Twitter but Willa Paskin wrote a great piece on Slate also about this moment that's like what if this encounter between Jen, two winners that night, Jen Furness and Brad Pitt backstage or him watching her award or whatever, what if it is all stage? Like, who cares? That if it is, if it is in any way stage, which I don't believe it is, but if it is, 
it, they just seem to be like two humans who still like each other against all odds. That's great. But like, let's let's say stage in some way, some photo oppo, like that's still their teams working together towards something, and that's like. That's uh, that's still a story I like, so I'm yeah. not mad about any version of it. I also think, and this is me projecting quite a bit, I'm sure, but something about Brad and Jen both winning awards at this, you know, at this fun award show, both looking sunny and California and happy, and you know, they were, you know, th- th- it made me feel like. Oh wait! Not that much time has passed. We're still young. Yes. Like every yeah. look, look, nineteen ninety nine was five years ago. Exactly. Richard. There they still are. Like we, we, those are our celebrities. I don't. Who cares if I don't know who Billie Eilish is or whatever? Like they are still <laughs> our celebrities. And I feel like that is such a warming, calming yes. sort of thing that like maybe some of that feeling will extend into Oscar voting, where they're like, "Oh, that Brad thing was so nice. I want. I want to feel that again." You know? Like, yeah. And and it's not just. And what's what's even great because I think yeah. Katie says something like, oh, we all get to feel 15 years younger. Like, you know, how fun for us. But like, in addition to all of that is the, not just that Jen is on the morning show and winning an award for the morning show, but like that she's a Gen Z icon because Friends is like this crazy streaming enduring hit. And then Brad is still like, still every inch the movie star. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. It's a crazy thing. Like there was, there's a part of me, there's just like a really salty, Gen X part of me that wanted to just be like, ugh, why are we focusing on this photo? And then I just like gave up on it five minutes later. I was like, let's just soak in it. It's fine. <laughs> oh, look, he watched her acceptance speech. It's great. It's fine. I like it. There's also something like I was like I was saying about how we're the studio system's alive and well with this year's Oscars. Like Brad Pitt winning an Oscar makes you feel like movie stars are still alive and well. It's something that we felt like we'd given up on in the last decade. But the fervor around these two, who are kind of like the last vestiges of the era of movie stars, that's comforting in the same way that like it's comforting to think you're 15 years younger. Yeah. Oh, and I just want to stress that like to the extent that Brad has somebody writing his jokes and you know the teams made sure that they had a chance to take a picture together like this is not conspiracy this is competency this is actually yeah. knowing how to function <laughs> yeah. well in the 21st yeah. century like I am all for it a total oh, yeah. approval there's on nothing my side. sinister about any of that yeah. and and I think that like you know there and what what's been so impressive and I think you already touched on this Mike is both with his speeches and with this Aniston moment, it all just felt so gentle. It did not feel yes. like the hard press of like PR or whatever it, or optics. You know, it just felt like, oh, how nice that this this moment could kind of float into existence, and now here we are enjoying it. And then, you know, um, there's been such an ease to it that mm-hmm. uh, is really appealing, which also ties into his role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Ease. Uh, in the public eye is is Ooh, hard, hard one. Uh, <laughs> so hard many publicists yeah. really, on the phone. A, they did a beautiful job. Oh, I also wanted to say in terms of actors at SAG, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's speech really stood out to me because it was so different from his Golden Globe speech. Yeah. Like the Golden Globes, he was like, I kind of hate being here. Don't fly private planes. These awards are made up. And he was so like, I mean, the SAG Awards, I think, are more legit than the Golden Globes. And that was part of his speech. But just the way that he talked about the other actors, he told this great joke about Leonardo DiCaprio. It was lovely. And it did feel like, you know, speaking of the work behind the scenes, like someone got to him being like, dude, you got to. You can't tear down this institution while you're on an award show stage. Save it for later. Yeah. I also think it's it's nice when, you know, it's like it's like watching the the, the actor roundtables or whatever that Hollywood Reporter does or whatever. It's nice when you get the impression that someone has actually watched 
everything that they're being nominated against, you know? Like in, in his in his SAG speech, I feel like Phoenix really had seen all the, the, the four other movies, you know? Except mm-hmm. for Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, except for um. Oh, I don't know. I think he might have seen it. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like him and Rooney could have snuggled up on the couch sometime. <laughs> put that baby Like on a plane. Yeah. He's like, oh, a plane. Where are we going to um, flight? Uh, not in our private jet. Yeah. But <laughs> it was a nice thing. And it, it was also kind of felt, and, and, and maybe he just has a particular antipathy for the HFPA or the Golden Globes or something, but I wonder also is, you know, kind of similar to Pitt, although in a much shorter timeline, like, I'm wondering if there was a moment where Phoenix was like, you know what, I kind of want, like, I kind of want to be here. I kind of want this, like, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. um, I feel like that something like that must have clicked into place before the SAGs. And, you know, he st- was still very much him in that speech, but it it felt much, much um, more, more, I don't know, uh, gracious, I guess. One thing that's super interesting about what he said to Leonardo DiCaprio which was basically like everyone in the world just wanted to give every role to Leo, is that, you know, that could have been River Phoenix um, mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. he passed away. Like there's there's some kind of interesting link between River's lost potential and DiCaprio's career, I feel like. So that was a, just an interesting resonance in, in that discussion. It was very yeah. gracious. It was a very gracious speech. I think maybe also just it's their union, you know? Like it was funny. There were a number of sort of reminders throughout the show of what a union, I was practically ready to see like a Bernie ad, right. um, you know, what a union thing this is, but it's not the place for Joaquin to start like, you know, I don't know what, making v- vegan speeches or whatever. Um, you bringing up River Phoenix made me uh, wonder this. And I don't have the facts. Are these going to be all Gen X Oscar winners? Is Laura Dern Gen X? Laura Dern was born in 67. Yeah. Uh, Brad Pitt is 63. So I guess wow. he's kind of, is Brad Pitt a boomer? <laughs> Brad Pitt is like an old, young boomer, I think. Joaquin Phoenix is 74. I don't really know and, what the Gen X cutoff is. But they all feel Gen X, don't they? Yes. And Renee mm-hmm. Zellweger is 69. So, yeah, they're all well, like they, right in that wheelhouse. They were all coming up in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. yeah. They all had like really definitive 90s roles. Yeah. Um, maybe Joaquin Phoenix less so, but definitely uh, the other three. Gen X, <laughs> Gen X is, uh, I mean, depends on your definition. Easily Googleable at uh, 65. So, um, okay, okay, boomer, boomer. Brad Pitt. <laughs> love it. Love to see it. But I also see a Gen X 61. So I think Brad's on the cusp anyway. He certainly yeah. is more associated. He's like me. He's like me. He can claim what he wants to claim, and yeah. he just <laughs> join me in claiming Gen X. So. Yeah, I mean, not not to put it not to put it like in in horrible terms, but I feel like Gen X is kind of Vietnam to AIDS. Right, like wow. that that twenty <laughs> years then. Well, no, because I've always heard that Gen Gen Z is or, or, or millennials rather are like eight to nine eleven. So like, and people put yeah. it in really harsh terms. But damn. Anyway, meanwhile, I don't know um, if all of our uh, listeners saw the post uh, yesterday, but the cover was Gen X J E N E X with that picture of Brad <laughs> and Jen, which really was kind oh, of inspired. But, yeah. <laughs> This is a, the, what a moment for Gen X we're going to have this year. I kind of felt like our our um, Vanity Fair Instagram was upon a time in Hollywood. Caption was inspired. Was yes. that yeah. I don't know. No, no, that. no. It was, no, it was our social team. Our I, beautiful I social gave them team. a large uh, round of applause for that. Yeah, that was great. Do we want to say anything about Laura Dern and Renee Zellweger's speeches? They were both good. Renee Zellweger has a thicker accent than I remembered her having um, yeah. in the two, early 2000s. I think it d- depends on the night, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like her Texas accent 
maybe it, it, it resurged because she took some time away from working, you know, in Hollywood. And maybe she just returned to her, her roots. But I don't know. I, I, I or, or maybe she's putting it on as a sort of charm offensive. But I don't know. I, I think that she's been very good uh, on this circuit um, or as good as she needs to be. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, the, she'll have no trouble getting on that stage. As someone who can strategically deploy a Southern accent, I respect the game. <laughs> <laughs> Not to plug our own content again, but I think her her uh, tap dancing video that went with our cover story, oh, yeah. uh, where, where yeah, the accent is great. in full effect, is very charming. It's, I, I, I feel like I've always known when, when VF has really permeated the zeitgeist when I see memes from our videos on gay Twitter. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's when it's really hit the big time, I think. Is she at sorry to this man levels or not yet? Not, uh, not no, but yet. like Bobby Finger is doing his damnedest to make one of her tap dancing kind of a thing. It's pretty good. <laughs> know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. All right, well, Richard, the DGA Awards are going to be this weekend, uh, but you're going to be, um, you know, out of cell phone range, I guess, in the Rocky Mountains. So um, goodbye for now. Um, can you give us a, a little preview of what you're looking forward to at Sundance? Yes, I'm headed up to the Wasatch Range, uh, which is the little stretch of mountains where, where Park City, Utah is. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting Sundance, um, partly because of the condensed award season calendar, which is not going to happen again next year. So this is this kind of one-off weird year where publicists, you know, God bless them, are flying back and forth from L.A. to Utah and, you know, again, because of the Oscar luncheon falling right in the middle of the festival and, you know, uh, it, it's just kind of going to be, I think, a, a very tense uh, festival for some people, hopefully not for me. Um, but for me, the, the, the interesting narrative outside of individual films is that last year Amazon was a big buyer. Um, you know, they got Britney Runs a Marathon for a big amount of money, Late Night for a big amount of money. And then both of those movies really did not perform well theatrically. In fact, they did so poorly that the the Aeronauts, which was not a festival purchase, but was one of their movies, uh, had this huge theater rollout plan, they, and they scaled that way back. And so I think Amazon, like we've seen other um, distributors do in the past, is kind of retrenching, retreating a little bit to a more sort of austerity mindset. So I'm just kind of curious what the marketplace is going to be like at Sundance this year. And that marketplace as it has been for years now, is shifting again because Netflix, you know, Netflix now just brings movies it already has to the festival. Like um, The Last Thing He Wanted, the D-Rees adaptation of a Joan Didion novella starring Anne Hathaway. Like, they already have that. They already have Horse Girl with... Um, Allison Brie, they already that have... That trailer was wild. It's it an interesting out, uh, trailer. Right before we recorded this, yeah. And that's out like a week or so after the festival. So so I, I just feel like there's an element of Sundance becoming kind of a showcase for stuff that Netflix or A24 already has. And then the other things that are more for sale, I don't really know where they're going to go. So I'll, I'll be curious to see that. But I don't know if our listeners really care about that kind of nuts and bolts. Well, it'll be interesting to see Fox Searchlight especially, right? Because this is like their first full year under Disney. And like from it seemed that Disney was not really going to mess with Searchlight very much, but they've been a big Sundance buyer in the past, um, but probably also won't be going around spending $12 million on an acquisition. Um, so I'll be interested to watch that happen. Well, yeah, yes. And and Katie, I have to correct you. you, you it's not Fox Searchlight anymore. Excuse it's me. Just it's just Searchlight. Searchlight. Um, you know, oh, I'm going to have a hard time getting used to that. Searchlight had a similar thing to Amazon last year. They had this happen a few years ago when they spent, I think it was $19 million on Birth of a Nation. Uh, oh, and that Whew. completely, you know, tanked and was a disaster for them. So they kind of 
of, you know, pulled up stakes a bit from the festival. So, so I'll be curious. Um, that said, um, there are some really promising movies on the lineup. Well, there's, of course, one of the opening night films, Miss Americana, which is a Netflix documentary about Taylor Swift. Um, so that will uh, get people buzzing, I'm sure. But past that, I think the number one movie that I'm really curious about, it's screening early. It's on fr- this coming Friday, so tomorrow if you're listening to this on Thursday, um, a movie called Zola from the director, oh, yeah. Janixa Bravo, co-written by Jeremy O'Harris, who's this very hot young playwright at New York right now. And it is, I believe... And you're going to probably see this in a VF headline soon, because I'm going to write about it, is <laughs> the first movie ever based on a Twitter thread, uh, which is kind of a, I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse or both, but uh, it is indeed. I don't know if people remember, but there was a tweet thread from a few years ago uh, that started with someone saying, you want to hear a story about why me and this bitch here fell out? It's kind of long, but <laughs> full of suspense. And then it turns into this epic journey through America with this these two women who I believe are both strippers and all this kind of crazy stuff happens to them and someone saw fit to option a Twitter thread and now it's going to be a movie at I remember Sundance. that thread. Yeah. Great yeah. thread. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, it's A24 has it, Christine Vashon producing. Uh, Janixa Bravo made a movie called Lemon that was at Sundance a couple years ago. The movie stars Riley Keough, Taylor Page, Nicholas Braun uh, from Succession is in it, uh, and Coleman Domingo, who's a great actor. So that one I just feel like is going to be buzz, buzz, buzzy. Um, But uh, as with everything at Sundance, only if it's good. Uh, Richard, I want to give you a chance to plant your flag on something you've been mentioning to me as you're looking at the lineup. Uh, uh, Amy Ryan, Oscar nominee 2021 for something that's showing up at Sundance? Well, yeah, so Amy Ryan has a couple movies uh, at Sundance this year. You know, people will remember she was nominated for an Oscar for supporting for Gone Baby Gone, what, 12 years ago? Um, And then since then has, you know, done interesting smaller work, but uh, hasn't really recaptured that same profile. But maybe this year will will be something because not only does she have a movie called Worth with Michael Keaton about um, the people who had to assess the basically the worth of each 9-11 relief worker who got sick and how much money to compensate them and all that. So that's an interesting story. She's not the lead in that, but, you know, she's in that and that movie will be big at the festival. But she's also the lead in a movie called uh, Lost Girls, which is based on a true story about... um, a woman whose daughter was murdered on Long Island and she helped kind of uncover this serial killer who was killing sex workers on Long Island. And this was not too long ago. That's a Netflix movie that I believe is coming out this spring. So I don't know how Oscar it is, but like it's always interesting when an actor like that has more than one project at a festival um, uh, because, you know, sometimes that, that can mean that they'll they'll break big from from at least one of them. Yeah, because what gets you guys talking at Sundance, like, you know, buzz can be really valuable or really not valuable, depending. But there is something with everyone's like, oh, yeah, Amy Ryan, like all at once that can really snow snowball uh, over the course of a year from Sundance. For sure. For sure. Um, and another thing, you know, I won't talk too much about this. We can we can catch up on Sundance later. But like something that is really interesting about Sundance as a festival compared to other festivals is that they have made really strenuous and I think so far successful efforts to reach gender parity in terms of um, who is directing the films that they select. Um, they've gotten very diverse in terms of sexual orientation, gender identity, like all like in terms of people behind the camera, in front of the camera. Um, racial diversity certainly has been top of mind. And I think that they, looking at this lineup, it doesn't feel like the standard Sundance fair from 10 years ago or even five years ago. Um, so we'll see how that kind of bears out in terms of sales and uh, audience kind of enthusiasm. Sundance 
audience. Audiences are very receptive to all kinds of things. And I think sometimes that can skew how a movie is going to play down <laughs> off the mountain, which is always a kind of tricky calculus for both you know, distributors and critics and whoever else. But it's very exciting to make my schedule and see how many you know, female filmmakers, filmmakers of color, like how many kind of interesting narratives. It's not just, you know, 20 something white guy figuring out romance in New York City, you know, which I right. feel like was a lot of Sundance yes. movies for a long time. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's encouraging. And I think that, like, maybe they're, that whatever model they use to implement these changes pretty rapidly, actually, um, other film festivals who were trying to do the same um, should should kind of look to them for an example, maybe. Uh, okay, now we're going to go to the uh, conversation I had with Ellen Lewis, who, as I mentioned, was the casting director for The Irishman um, and has been working with Martin Scorsese for a long time. So she's um, she's cast a whole lot of people in a whole lot of great movies, and uh, it's exciting to talk to her about all of that. Congratulations on the Ardios Award nominations. I'm, I'm excited to. I spent so much time talking about the Oscars, but I feel like talking about a different awards show is a uh, is an exciting experience for me. Thank you. Before I even talk about the Irishman, I'm curious, what are the RDS Awards like? I see that there's two ceremonies, one in New York, one in L.A. Are they are they comparable to the Oscars in any way? Are they kind of a more intimate dinner? How do they work? Well, L.A. is really different than New York. So, you know, we're a smaller community here, but a fantastic community. Mm-hmm. And obviously in New York, even though L.A. announces theater winners, and I think there's an L.A. theater award given as well but you know we have the whole theater community here so it's uh it's mixing many different worlds in one award show yeah so theater obviously is a huge part of um the new york scene and so that's really a great part of that is that those people are uh acknowledged as well broadway off broadway yeah Every time I've ever interviewed a New York-based casting director, uh, it seems like you see a lot of theater just because that's where so many New York actors wind up. So when you see theater people, you're you're as up-to-date on them as anybody, I imagine. Trying to be. (laughs) Trying to be. But, yeah, so it's just in some ways it's a more, I mean, L.A., they have a dinner and it's at the Beverly Wilshire and it's, you know, everything in here. It's more of a cocktail kind of party and then people sit down and, and do the awards. Is it more fun than the Oscars? I don't know if I'd say, I don't think we can compare the Oscars <laughs> to the RDOs Awards. That's beautiful that you're even thinking of them <laughs> with the same context. But I don't think you could probably talk about any, I don't know if you've interviewed people, you know, editors or costume designers, uh, you know, to compare. Uh, every guild uh, has their an award ceremony for their community. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just great to be in your community. And I love, you know, I, I love casting and I have many great friends in Los Angeles who are casting directors, but I live in New York. So it's great to be able to be here. Yeah. I was actually curious about the way that the nominations were, because uh, you were nominated for The Irishman within big budget drama, but it's divided up into, I think, three or four different categories based on budget. And I think as a moviegoer, we all know a big budget movie's visual effects versus a smaller one. But for casting, is, is there a really big difference that budget makes in the work that you do? Not necessarily, um, because a lot of times we're asked to kind of keep uh our budget in check and what people are getting paid. I mean, that has nothing to do with the big stars who are in something. Uh, You know, working with a director like Martin Scorsese, so many actors 
you know, are thrilled to work with him, as well as Jim Jarmusch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's always a great thing because people are calling and people want to work with those with those directors. Well, and I imagine for um, something like The Irishman, when you have like a crowd scene or something like that, you know that you can populate a room with way more people than if you had a smaller budget film. You know, I do not do non-speaking roles. So ah. when you're talking about... Yes, yeah, so that's extras casting, which is its own amazing, really hard job. And the people who did the extras casting on The Irishman did a phenomenal job. A woman named Sable, who works with Grant Wilfley, who does a lot of the movies here. And they've been working on Marty's, you know, movies for a long time. They do an amazing job. I cast every person who speaks or might speak. So many times that does include people who don't have lines. Mm -hmm. But Marty is looking for, you know, he just wants to know that if something comes up and they have a line, that they're going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think of something even like, um, like the big dinner party for Frank Sheeran that happens in the middle of the film. That's a lot of people who do speak. Like that's a big crowd. That's not all extras. A lot of, a lot of small characters in there. I cast pretty much everyone on that across that stage. <laughs> it's quite a lineup of people. It wasn't fun. It was a good lineup of people. So you've worked with Mark Scorsese uh, long enough at this point that I imagine you have probably not even a shorthand. Like, you know what he's going to say before he says it. So when something like The Irishman starts, what is that first conversation? What does he send you out with to, to go about putting this movie together? Well, I would never say that I know what he's going to say before he says it. So definitely... <laughs> That is that is not a quote in any way. <laughs> that is not true. Um, we did a very early read through of this script about eight or nine years before the movie got made. Mm-hmm. So I had a sense of, you know, obviously of what this story was. There are real people. I will get photos of those people. There might be films that I look at to uh, get a sense of a tone that Marty's looking for. Mm-hmm. and But I start every project as if I've never done this before. Mm. So, but I do look back at things that he's directed, some of which I've worked on and some that I haven't, because he, he does like working uh, with people that he's worked with before. So if we see a spot for them, then I just will, you know, start working on lists uh, for different characters or different groupings Mm -hmm. of actors. Different groupings is in like different groups of people who you'd see within the film, like the family members or the the Teamsters or something like that. Okay, That's exactly right. The Teamsters, the family members, the Villa Roma or the friendly lounge. And so you kind of, then it's like, okay, where my different people fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's also really opening. We put a breakdown out that goes to all the agencies. And we also reach out to something called actors access, which actors who don't have representation, mm-hmm. um, are they submit their photos. I don't know exactly what I think they 
unfortunately probably have to pay to do that, but um, they do. And I carefully look at something like that in this in a movie like this because I'm looking for new faces. I'm looking for a, a sense of authenticity. But then also you have, you know, phenomenal actors in this, like Stephen Graham or, you know, Ray Romano and Bobby Cannavale, and, you know, really mm-hmm. fantastic yeah. actors. But then and Stephanie Kurtzuba, Welker White, Catherine Narducci. But then also, I mean, I can keep mentioning all the great actors who are acting in the movie, Jesse Plemons and Louis Cantelmi. But then also interspersed with that are real people who haven't ever acted before. I had some casting associates who were going to Italian festivals in New Jersey over the summer. We went to cigar clubs in New York. Hmm. And, and then as well as I say, agents submit people and I really encourage the agents to open their minds to comedians, musicians, uh, who might fit the world. Mm-hmm. And I imagine when you're having conversations with agents or actors um, early on and you have a project like this, as opposed to something with maybe, you know, fewer stars or less high profile, that the level of interest from people, it's, it's not hard to get people to come submit for something like this. That's true. But generally, I mean, something that I really enjoy is working very creatively with agents. So I actually, rather than doing everything online, I like to get on the phone with people and talk about the tone of the picture and the the feeling that I'm looking for. And, you know, I really count on on agents to work creatively with me. Is there any casting in this movie that you feel like came about from that creative thinking that, you know, someone who maybe wouldn't have been considered for something like this for a period film that you brought in there that, that you're especially proud of? Anna Paquin. That, yeah, she's someone I definitely want to ask about. Right. Anna's agent, Gabby Morgerman. I actually just called Gabby yesterday to again thank her. Um, you know, Anna wanted to work with Marty. And so she auditioned. She knew what this role was. And I think it's really refreshing when an agent is working with you, as I say. Mm-hmm. She knew that this part, she, I mean, she was the moral center of the movie. Yeah. And she knew what this role was, and she really wanted to work with Marty, and it's fantastic. So when the, um, when the responses came out to her role in it, and there were people kind of, I, I think, wrongly saying that her role wasn't big enough because she didn't speak, did that surprise you, or did you know, having gone through that casting process, that people were going to be a little thrown off by the nature of her role? You know, I have to say, I didn't really think about it that much until all of a sudden. <laughs> It was happening because in some ways I'm in a creative bubble. And when the idea came up and Anna read and Marty was looking at her and thinking about her eyes, Mm. observing everything going on, it's just was such a creative choice so that I didn't think about oh, people are going to be thrown by this. And I, and, and I understand that people have asked that. I've also had people say to me, what a, fin- like, she's so fantastic in the movie. Oh, she's amazing in the movie. But it was always an important role to us. We knew what an important role it was. Mm-hmm. And for the other wives, I mean, you know, I really think the wives anchor their men in many ways. Oh, yeah. And 
Stephanie Kurtzuba is an actress that I had cast in Away We Go, a Sam Mendes movie that was a couple of years before The Wolf of Wall Street. I think she's a fantastic actress. So she was in The Wolf of Wall Street. And then when we did our reading, our table reading, Stephanie read our women's roles. Hmm. So we had her in mind um, right from the get-go. Well, Kerr White was in Goodfellas. Yeah. She played the babysitter and then played a small part in The Wolf of Wall Street. So that's what I say when I think about circling back to people. Oh, this, you know, this person is going to fit and Marty knows them, and let me talk to him about it and see how that feels. Do you have people who you just keep in mind for years and years and years and are trying to make them fit and then finally find the right role for them and it comes as a huge relief? You know, it's funny because what is so important as a casting director, I think, is to keep your mind open at all times to everybody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not, not to close off, but... Daniel Jenkins is a good example. So he plays Big Ears, who's E. Howard Hunt. Mm-hmm. Big Ears. And I've known Dan Jenkins for 35 years when I worked for Julia Taylor. I mean, I've known him for so long. He's been doing really interesting work, stage work. He was in a fantastic play, Oslo. And you know, it's such a thrill to be able to bring him in for something and have him get cast in a Martin Scorsese movie. It's fantastic. Yeah. When you're casting, I, I'm curious about the de-aging on this, which I, I, I'm imagining that doesn't have as big an influence on the work that you're doing as um, imagining for a period film, which you've done a lot of them. And at this point, it's probably second nature. But when you have someone come in and they look like someone who lives now and you're trying to imagine them with like big 70s hair or mustache or, or something else, w- what does that active imagination require? What do you have to do to imagine someone in this period? You know, if I don't think if I think someone seems too contemporary, I'm not going to even think about it. You know, oh. it's just going to wrong. So you know so right away. I, yeah, I know right away. Yeah. Stephen Graham, we met on Gangs of New York, you know, mm. play Tony Pro, Pro, Tony Provenzano. Yeah. I mean, we, which is a period piece. We cast him as Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire. So obviously I knew that he had a good period feeling to him. I mean, yeah, exactly. If you feel that someone's going to seem too contemporary, but then what was so fantastic was about keeping your mind open to things. An agent submitted Action Bronson. So Action Bronson is a rapper and, you know, TV food star. Mm -hmm. I had never heard of him before, but I was fascinated by the music video that the agent sent me. Mm-hmm. I just thought he was fascinating. And he came in and read, and the reading was so much fun. He certainly did seem contemporary in his way, but also just very unusual and funny. And I felt safe to be able to show Marty a reading like that that was so kind of a left-hand turn. Mm. And then Marty's like, Oh, well, he's great. And, you know, hopefully we'll be able to figure out where to use him. And then there he is. And it is a more contemporary time period as the casket salesman. Yeah. 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 So so when you get someone into the present, it changes the entire math of it. Yeah. 
Well, I even think about um, Jesse Plemons as someone like, you know, I associate him with Breaking Bad and with Friday Night Lights and he's played so many contemporary roles. And I don't know that I would have thought of him to be in something more period. But when you see him, he fits in perfectly. And that that feels like some kind of, you know, wizardry on your part. No, look, I think I revere Jesse Plemons and he knows that. So I'm proud to say it. Um, I think he's one of the great actors around today. It's unbelievable that he's as young as he is. But, you know, he was in The Master, Paul Thomas Anderson film where he played Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. You know, I was just immediately struck by him and really had a very strong sense that Marty would respond to him. And, you know, right away had him in mind for the role of Chucky. Mm -hmm. Um, and just was, you know, able to show the clip from the master and a couple of other things and then set up a meeting so that Marty and Bob could meet him. And, you know, I really look forward to them working together again. Well, I I know that, um, Marty's one of those people who has a a hundred projects in mind at any given time and he's producing so many things, but do you ever know when you finish one thing, like what the next thing might be? Sometimes yes. And sometimes no. (laughs) I mean, you know, Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio mentioned at the SAG Awards Marty's next movie, which is called The Killers of the Flower Moon mm-hmm. by David Graham. So that's what I think we're doing next, which is a very exciting project. Well, that's I mean, for casting, because that takes place on a, a Native American reservation, right? So that's going to be a Correct. very different world from The Irishman. Very different world. But, you know, that is the great thing about, I mean, my job in general takes me to you know, whatever world it is that we're doing, but obviously, particularly with Marty, you know, I went from Goodfellas to the age of innocence, mm-hmm. um, Cape Fear, then Casino, I have probably 90% of Casino out of Las Vegas. On Kundun, I went to India. And Silence, I went to Japan. So yeah. it's so engaging. And I feel so lucky because I get to learn so much on each project. You know, I feel like when I'm watching something that has an impressive cast, I'll know, um, you know, if I think the acting is good or not. But I feel like I don't have as good a sense for what a really well cast movie is for you when you're seeing something that feels well cast to you. What what do you look for? You know, I think for myself that I like a, a certain reality and I have so many amazing peers, you know, in casting. I mean, this year alone, Vicki Thomas, who did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Doug Abel and Francine Maisler, who did Marriage Story. I mean, all these people are so talented, you know. I mean, then also I came from, I worked for Julia Taylor for eight and a half years, and my friend Laura Rosenthal, who's a brilliant casting director, we overlapped in our time there. Uh, Patricia Deserto, I just, and you know, Julia worked for Marion Dougherty, so I come from kind of a, a real casting family and mm-hmm. really love the feeling of community. I really uh, love the casting community. Well, um, I'm glad you get to catch up with all of them at the Artist Awards, as I, I imagine something like a big family reunion. So. So enjoy it. Yeah, no, I think it'll be really fun. As I say, in New York, is a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs>
That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week as this short award season barrels onward. Uh, we're almost to the end, which is crazy. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Terrific. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best reason to rate and review Little Gold Men on Apple Podcasts goes to Richard Lawson. It's already become the weird culty thing. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.